Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I am Joe Devine and today I was delighted to be joined by Murad Ahmed, sports correspondent for the Financial Times. I spoke to Murad about a few different things. Firstly, the economic impact of the coronavirus on football, why clubs have to finish their leagues to avoid what could be disastrous economic consequences, uh, how the length of the lockdown is the major factor, um, and uh, all of the potential ramifications of there being no football, of which there are many. Um, secondly, we spoke about a story that Murad covered recently on Jim Ratcliffe, British billionaire, who, through his uh, company, uh, Ineos, I can't remember, Murad told me how to pronounce it properly in the podcast, but I've already forgotten. Ineos, I think it is. Uh, Through his company, Ineos, Jim Ratcliffe has now spent £400 million investing uh, and sponsoring different sports. Critics of Ratcliffe say that he is using sports to greenwash the environmental damage that his chemical company does. Chemical company. But supporters say that he's just sports mad. Hmm? Where's the line? What is sports washing or green washing in this case? And why would someone spend £400 million on sport if it made them no money? Also, we discussed the City Football Group and the Red Bull Network, why clubs would want to form networks like this. And finally, I asked Murad a little bit about himself, uh, starting out as a tech reporter. How did he find himself chatting to chief executives of PL clubs, governing bodies and footballers? working at the Financial Times, which is just an all-round cool place. Hmm? Uh, Before I get started, I should say that this episode is supported by The Athletic, one of the best places to read about football online and personally uh, totally um, crucial to my sanity this week as I self-isolate. You can get a seven-day free trial, see if you like it. Uh, And if you do, you can get 50% off an annual subscription. That is £2.50 per month. Super affordable. Please go and do that. That is theathletic.co.uk forward slash TIFO. You can get your seven-day free trial there, get started, and hopefully enjoy a 50% off annual subscription. Anyway, uh, I was really pleased that Murad joined me today um, due to the current situation. However, we were, of course, prohibited from um, meeting in person to record the episode. So Murad chatted to be over the internet from his own house. Imagine that. Um, he's a fascinating guy, real deep knowledge of football business. So it was, uh, it was a real pleasure to, to have him talk me through the following... Okay, so Murat, can I first ask you uh, about coronavirus? Hey, what a surprise! Um, it's the what we're interested in, I think, particularly is the is the economic impact on on football, and obviously we're all anticipating that top level clubs will probably be okay. But can I ask you, at what sort of league level, if it's possible to answer this question, are we potentially going to see long term or even like catastrophic dangers for for, for clubs, and, and why would that be? Yeah. Uh, it- a lot of clubs are trying to work through this at the moment. So here's the current state of play. Um, we've got suspended leagues across Europe, and the crucial decision that had to be made was what happened to the Euro 2020 Championships because it, it was creating this kind of bookend to the season. And a lot of the domestic leagues can't continue, can't resume if they've got this huge mega tournament in the middle. So they've, they pushed that to 2021. And the idea is to buy time for all the leagues to finish, the Champions League to finish, the Europa League to finish in some way. It's just push that off and see if the summer can be filled with domestic football from across Europe. Mm. And if 
the coronavirus peak is in May, June, and we have governments starting to open up after that. And maybe you can start playing games behind closed doors, for example, in that period. Then there's a kind of plausible scenario where you could finish the um, finish the season pretty much as is, and that would have relatively limited impacts right um on uh, across football but here and here's a big but um the the reason why you have to try and finish the uh the season as it is is broadcasting contracts are paid um according to how much content you have how many yeah. games are shown so say the premier league they that's hundreds of millions of pounds that they would put on the table if you didn't finish the season. So uh, West Ham United's Karen Brady saying you should have a null and void season. The reason why that's completely logical at this point to do um, is that you're going to le- put a lot of, you're going to leave a lot of money on the table. That's right. right. Yeah. And then the three main sources of income for a club, broadcasting, uh, ticketing and match day income, and then sponsorship. And sponsorship would also go down under the same rules as broadcasting. You've got to have something to sponsor against. And then there's the uh, if if you're even playing games behind closed doors, there's a there's a big hit. Now, the when this whole thing happened, there was a feeling that insurance policies would just pick this up, that the huge hit on income would be caught by insurance, and that's what insurance is for. But you've got to think about how these insurance contracts have been done. Most of these insurance contracts for most clubs, I don't know, I've been speaking to them all week, they cover maybe one or two games that are lost. They're usually covering things like you're having to call off a game because there's a freak weather condition last minute and you've paid all the staff to be there and you're having to refund tickets even though you're going to rearrange the game. Right, yeah. That's what the insurance policy covers. Nobody, it seems to me, even at the level of the Premier League, has something comprehensive that can deal with a cancelled season. Everyone's going to take a massive hit if that happens. Um, so that's a kind of starting point. Now, when you start going down lower down the leagues, say in the championship and below, this is a really critical time. Because if you don't play the games, they are much more reliant on ticketing income, than broadcasting income most of the teams in the championships are already making a loss um and i spoke to leeds united's chief executive angus Kinnear earlier this week and he said that banks are already starting to stop lending to football clubs partly because we the media are so obsessed with football um everybody knows what the situation is with football at the moment knows that it's all shut down and the banks don't need a team of analysts to work out that this is going to be a huge hit on business right yeah so there's a kind of there's a, this ripple effect happens if you if you're not, if banks aren't lending to you when you don't have any income coming in there's a cash crunch you just can't pay staff you can't play your suppliers you eventually won't be able to pay your players you're going to go bust and if this continues on for a few more months into september and so on you are going to see teams down the leagues go out of business there's just it's impossible to see a scenario that 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 doesn't happen in right uh so there's all sorts of weird things that are happening right now 
I, just one more thing. Like things like player contracts tend to run out in June at the end of the season. Mm. So you're going to have a whole load of players on, uh, as free agents, but with no football coming up. So they either could be let loose or they could start being poached by lots of other teams effectively in the middle of a season. Yeah. So you need all the leagues to work out how to do that, um, how to deal with that. And transfer fees are not paid up front. So the 60 million paid for Bruno Fernandes uh, by Manchester United, that's paid over the lifetime of his five or six year contract. Yeah. And so the tranches start getting ha- be having to be paid. So uh, you're going to have this scenario where lots of clubs are having to suddenly pay each other their next tranche of transfer fees, but they can't afford to because there's no money coming in and they're all going to be in debt to each other. Uh, so you're going to have this huge <laughs> debt boom across football clubs where they all owe each other money and they can't survive without the money that is, uh, that is due to each other. And it's a systemic shock to the entire football industry. Right. So I think we're, like, without football being played... For a long, long period of time, these clubs, even at the top end, will go out of business. Um, so they've got to find a way of getting the games back on. Right. And can I ask you about the process in which they, they do go out of business? I mean, I, I, you know, the, the recent examples of Berry, for example, and we've had other yeah. clubs in the last 10 years or so. What is the order of events here? Because we hear words like administration, liquidation, going bust, these sorts of things. In what order does this take place and what can supporters expect if the delays were to extend beyond the summer? Well, this is so unprecedented that it's a case like Bury or a, a club that's teetering like Oldham Athletic even before all of this started happening. Yeah. It, it's very it's very hard to see them as analogous cases. Um so a Bury goes into administration administration effectively means somebody from the outside comes in and looks through the books um and says okay you've got a whole list of creditors money that's owed to various different suppliers or whoever owns the debt. In Barry's case, it was people who owned the stadium and parking spaces and all sorts of stuff that was going on there. And they pick an order of who should get paid. And then they start uh, um, divvying up what money is left between the people who are owed. Mm. That's a kind of administration. That's an orderly administration. This what we're talking about here is a load of football clubs all not having any money for the, for the obvious reason that there is no football. They would immediately just there's no need to have an administration. They've got no assets, probably. Right. They, you would think, and they would just fall over. They'd be liquidated. The, these, um, but if if this was happening, we're going to be seeing this across the country in in restaurants and pubs and all sorts of different ways and football clubs will be the last of it um um so there's a there's a all i'm saying is there's a very good reason why this talk of null and voiding the season is a kind of madness like right. they've got to find a way of putting games on one way or the other um, even if it's or, behind closed doors even if it's behind closed doors you've just got to get the games on because at least you it, you defend uh, 
the broadcasting contracts in the professional leagues. And we're not even talking about non-league teams and all uh, uh, and everyone else who just don't benefit from that. So, um, so that is the kind of ripple effect that we're about to see across football. Yeah. Um, it's done to a certain calendar, but I think everyone's going to have to start being creative very, very quickly and work out a completely different calendar just to get things over the line and get things done. Wow. Okay. I mean, I, I did have a question written down here, which seems kind of stupid to ask you now, which is, do you think that this could be a, a transformational period for football? I assume <laughs> you, you, you do think that, Murad. I thought, well, yeah. Uh, it could be, right? It could, so look, it, it, could be, it could be that we're all over, overdoing it and that the peak comes and goes and, you know, the UK and everyone else has taken relatively strong measures and there's an impact to life that we'll always remember for the rest of our lives, but we kind of move on. Mm. But if anyone has read the kind of the Imperial College model of, of what this disease is going to do over the next 18 months, the likelihood is <laughs> at the moment, the way they've modeled it, is that we're going to have these measures in place of you know, no public gatherings, a lockdown across much of the country, very little economic activity. And then for a few months, that'll suppress the disease in, in a way that will hopefully allow us to uh, allow the NHS not to be completely overwhelmed. But it's only suppressed. And the moment we start doing mass gatherings again, going back to school, going back to university, going to work, the disease will pop up again and the government will tell us to shut down all over and this will happen periodically until we have a vaccine if that is what's going to happen next football is going to be on and off yeah um for 18 months until we have a vaccine for this thing and if that happens you will see a lot of clubs go bust because you just won't be able to play the games at all Right. And I guess that's why you're saying they'd have to be creative with their, with their scheduling, right? Um, can I ask you a specific question um, about, so let's say, for example, that um, the worst case scenario doesn't occur, that uh, yeah. the lockdowns across Europe and across the UK, and I guess the rest of the world as well, help to suppress the disease enough that it isn't spreading to vulnerable, vulnerable people, or at least if vulnerable people are in lockdown for longer, that healthcare uh, can, can manage it over a period of time and maybe mass gatherings are, are okay again, right? Yeah. Um, are there any... Uh, is, 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 is it possible, a hypothetical situation, that there'll be particular owners of football clubs who will have taken a huge hit over this period from their other businesses, which might impact on, on football itself? Uh, and the same question, I suppose, for, for sponsors as well. Are there any big companies who sponsor football who might struggle as a result of um, the economic decline at the moment uh, and potentially renege on deals or we could see issues coming into football that way yeah I mean, I mean, i've been trying to think about who's the most vulnerable um here and i i at the moment i just don't have a a great answer for you, for mm. you. um what type of businesses are the most vulnerable just generally it's uh, anything that involves travel yeah um so airlines um, uh, they're going to need a bailout of some sort uh, hospitality and leisure restaurants mm -hmm. um, uh, hotels Th those are the kind of the immediate vulnerable um, 
uh, uh, industries. Uh, but it it kind of all kind of, all you know the media industry is also vulnerable in in weird ways. So let's talk about something like Sky Sports. Yeah, you know, Sky Sports has nothing to show at the moment. Yeah, basically, um, they are already talking about giving up, um, uh, you know, subscriptions and saying, "Look, you can have your subscription on hold for the foreseeable future." Um, if if we're talking about months without actual actual sport, that's a whole load of money that goes out of Sky's pocket, and uh, it, it's hard to see how they don't decide to switch to a model that isn't so fixated on live sport. Live sport is so been the lifeblood of a subscription TV business like Sky for a long time. Yeah. So like there are it's it is really, really unpredictable. Um who else in the say the wider football industry is going to get affected by this. And I've sort of um, I'm trying to think of if there's a particular owner that is big in a particular industry that could be affected. But a no, lot of no the, one comes to lot, mind for me. Yeah, no one comes to mind. And a lot of the big sporting owners are, uh, in, in, in say, the Premier League, they're kind of they're in the football business a lot, a lot of the time or they're, they're in the sport business. You know, the, the Glazers at Manchester United, the, their money's primarily kind of stuck in, in sport or... FSG at Liverpool again. That's a kind of a, a sporting entity. They're mm. all relatively kind of quite strong. Uh, my my great my greater worry actually is that even a short term a disruption is is going to is going to really hit small community clubs up and yeah. down the country. Yeah, which would be devastating, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely. Okay. I mean, it's interesting, actually, uh, when when um, we were emailing about this before and uh, I was reading and thinking about it, it does, it strikes me that uh, football at the moment is, um, as it normally is, to be honest, a pretty good microcosm for, uh, you know, viewing the rest of society. I mean, I, like, I don't know about you and your personal life, but... I know um, at least a couple of people who have been sent home from work who work in like the entertainment industry or like in the theatre or in pubs and venues and stuff who now uh, are either on unpaid leave or don't don't have a job, right? Which is yeah. which is like a, the kind of horrific consequence of, of what's happening at the moment. Um, and you can see when you watch the news uh, and you read the newspapers that um, really what the virus is doing more than anything else is just illuminating the problems of financial imbalance that we already have. And yeah. in football, you can see that clearly, right? I mean, it's interesting to hear from you that you think top-level clubs could be affected if this goes on for long enough. But like, undoubtedly, it's the smaller leagues and the smaller clubs which are going to fold first. And this is, this is a persistent problem, virus aside. Uh, you only really needed something like this, which is you know, pr- pretty unprecedented, but to, to really just kind of shine a light on the, the cracks that were already there. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, that's really fair. And so a good way to think about it is what football clubs are. They're called clubs. They're not called companies. Yeah. They, they're representative of, of areas across, up and down the country. So the example of Leeds United, right? So we all see Leeds United and we, we think of the players and we think of the team and it's glory days, whatever. But what is Leeds United now? Leeds United employs about 250 members of staff. 
um, they've got nothing to do. And it seems right now they're being paid. But yeah. that ramps up to about a couple of thousand people on a match day, yeah. plus 400-odd suppliers of food and everything else that needs to be done to yeah. have 35,000 people in Ellen Road. And that is not happening right now. Yeah, This is... Uh, those that temporary stuff, all of that money is not being spent. It's a kind of a ripple effect over a small community. And that has been repeated over and over again across the country. And this is just the football industry, right? Uh, the reason why we're talking about it so much is that football sport has an outsized influence on the rest of society. Um, you know, uh, like we think of Manchester United as this mega thing you know this huge beast of an entity that's spoken about all around the world which it is but in money terms it's a relatively small <laughs> business in in world terms yeah like uh, my job is is at the financial times and i get a lot of ribbing that i'm spending a lot of time covering pretty small companies compared to the ones that my colleagues are covering right uh, any day of the week the reason why there's <laughs> you've got me dedicated to doing it and there's an endless supply of stories which i'm giving even now is because culturally the cachet of sport and football is much higher so there's a lot more focus on it but like you say that ripple effect is being felt right now yeah um and um and will continue to be felt look I, i'm just i I've, I've painted this a kind of apocalyptic scenario but i'm reasonably hopeful but um that actually there will be a solution that will work um and that we can get back uh to playing games again and, and talking about the actual sport partly because and you know i've spent all week talking to club execs and they're kind of in the in a particular mode right now, which is the first chance they can to to, to play the games, even behind closed doors, they will take it, right? Know, and they will be quite inventive about doing it. There's there's stuff going on about how you play the Champions League, you know, they, uh, at the moment. So there's a kind of conversation where maybe you could do one leg ties, um, and then a final four tournament over the course of a, of a weekend or a, or a few days. Um, you'd have to rip up rule books and you'd have to vote for complete change. Sure. But that would be, already in my head, that's pretty exciting. Like, that is pretty cool. I was just thinking the, that when you were saying it. <laughs> the Champions League across neutral venues plus a Final Four tournament, I'd want to watch that. You know, plus, if you're like, stuck the, in your house, like what better things to do over the weekend? Right. Um, uh, the issue always was... Um, the, the, I mean, a lot of this, the fans full planning before the shutdown um, was they, they hadn't really fully thought, thought through the scenario of when players start getting this. Mm. Um, and they are human beings like the rest of us. And the moment Mikel Arteta contracted coronavirus, it, just, it, it, was, it was just no chance of football um, coming back. Um, and that is a wider worry. A lot of players are going to start contracting this over the next few weeks and months. And in that scenario, how are you going to complete games? Yeah. You know, that, it's just impossible to see. So, look, give it a few weeks. We'll know where we are. It could be that football's the last thing on our mind anyway. Uh, my guess is, at the moment, it looks like we're going we're gonna to find some way of completing the season and the, the more critical effects will be allayed. Mm. 
um, other than maybe for the smaller clubs. When you were talking about um, Manchester United, it did. Uh, it struck me that Edward Wood's uh, idea that what happens on the football pitch is not that important for the business <laughs> is, is going to be tested quite heavily at the moment. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah. it's going to look pretty stupid be. right now. Yeah, I, I, I was talking. So, and also, there, there are weird opportunities that can happen as a result of what's going on now. So. Uh, I'm, I'm going to have to try and defend my source a little bit. A top executive at a big six club uh, was the last person I spoke to. Just mm-hmm. before Who I, was uh, it? Uh, Tell uh, me now, uh, immediately. <laughs> yeah, they were, you know, going to make it sound really dramatic and exciting. Yeah. But <laughs> they were saying, look, because we're the strongest clubs, um, there are some weird opportunities coming up here. If a lot of other clubs are needing money very, very quickly because of the the financial hit that they're taking, the transfer market is going to look very weird. Like there's going to be a lot of fire sales going on and and the bigger clubs are going to start picking off players at at a very cheap price um, because – they can they can afford to keep the ones that they have, and they can, and other clubs are going to be in desperate need for short term cash injections. And yeah, the, and you mean like they're buying they all place. the toilet paper, right? Is that the analogy we can draw? They have the money to buy all of the toilet paper, I'm, and I'm, the other I'm people thinking, don't. I'm thinking that all all of. The, of all the Jack Grealishes in the world and thinking if we yeah. can do an appropriate <laughs> Not toilet paper, toilet paper. That's, yeah, that was wrong. But, yeah. you know, like, you can see that scenario kind of play out. I mean, this is, mm. and that isn't kind of a weirdly optimistic scenario. That's a scenario where um, there's a there's, there's an actual transfer market in yeah. this summer. Um, but, you know, there, there are, there, there are going to be people plotting opportunities out of this for sure um and so there's a lot of kind of gaming out of the scenario um going on across football well i tell you what it's uh, it's depressing but it is uh, it's, it's also very fascinating just a quick interruption in today's podcast for me to remind you that we are supported by the athletic the best ad free high quality sometimes long form football journalism and indeed sports journalism out there available on the online internet but joe There's no football, so there's nothing to read about. Wrong voice in my head. In fact, despite the current situation, some of my favourite reads on The Athletic have been released this week. That's totally true. Such as uh, Matt Slater explaining what the new football calendar might look like, which was vital to me understanding what the new football calendar might look like, um, and or everything Matt Slater writes. Uh, Michael Cox did an awesome piece looking back at how Ferguson's United outwitted Inter tactically twice. Take that, Inter. Um, I like Inter. I don't know why I said that. And Simon Hughes, uh, he did an interview with Jamie Carragher in which Cara talks about how uh, amateur football shaped him, <clears throat> which was really interesting. Um, and there's there's loads more, honestly. It's uh, it's actually been a really good week in despite everything. Um, yeah, I would highly recommend that you uh, you go and get your seven day free trial and see if you uh, see if you like it. Because jokes aside, um, the Athletic is currently my go to for both stories following the coronavirus situation and those deliberately not following it. So a healthy dose of uh, realism and an ability to follow the story, and also a lovely bit of escapism uh, when I don't want to think or talk about it anymore. Goodness gracious me. Um, Okay. Well, anyway, that's theathletic.co.uk forward slash TIFO. Go. Do it now. Seven-day free trial. 50% off an annual subscription. £2.50 a month. Affordable. Intelligent. 
informative and fun. Hey, back to Murad. Um, let us move on, though, because I'd really rather not spend the entire time talking about uh, coronavirus, as I'm, I'm sure also you, presumably it's all you're talking about at the moment, right? It's all I'm thinking about. Yeah, I God, I know. It's awful, yeah. isn't it? Every single conversation, yeah. really try and move away from it. Let's talk about oh, Jim yeah. Ratcliffe. That sounds fun. Okay. Um, you wrote a really interesting long read on Jim Ratcliffe, and I don't know how to say his company's name, I, I, Ineos? Ineos. Ineos. That makes Ineos, a lot more sense. Yeah. Yes, Ineos. Uh, Jim Ratcliffe and Ineos. So Jim Ratcliffe, British billionaire owner of, uh, of Ineos. The company has spent £400 million on sporting enterprises uh, in, uh, in well, I guess in the last few years. Um, will you tell me a little bit about him? And I'm going to ask you, I suppose, why uh, a very wealthy person or a very wealthy company would want to spend that much money on uh, sport and what they get from it. But first, would you tell me a little bit about Jim Ratcliffe? So, uh, Jim Ratcliffe is a guy who became rich relatively late in life. So, around, uh, he was a kind of chemical engineer, um, and around the age of 40, he founded a, this business, Ineos, which is a massive, now massive chemicals business, which um, runs power plants and um uh, and does fracking around the world and builds a lot of the the basic building blocks of of materials that we need um for general life hmm. um and it, it the way he built this business was he he swallowed up lots of um parts of companies like uh bits of bp and others that were being run pretty badly and he run them much much better um and made a ton of money out of it so he 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 built this kind of petrochemicals company he's now 67 68 i'm pretty sure 67 um uh and he's in his 60s he's also a complete sports freak you know he mm. he's a mountaineer he's a sailor he was a boyhood manchester united fan and season ticket holder he um he's a keen cyclist you know um he's he's like that obsessive guy who who does all of the sports everything and <laughs> uh and can afford to do so so he gets to his 60s he's rich relatively late in life he's got kind of carpe diem attitude and he starts spending his huge wealth now um he's one of britain's richest men um and uh the other weird thing about the structure of ineos is that only three people own it so most mm. big businesses like this which are worth tens of billions of pounds they're owned by lots and lots of shareholders who own a little part of it and are making money out of it uh, and anyone who runs a business is responsible to all their shareholders. So you can't just go and suddenly chuck a whole load of money at, at sport um, just like that, because you're, you have to you have to justify that to loads and loads of hundreds and hundreds of shareholders. That's not the case at Ineos. The three people who who own the business: Jim Ratcliffe owns sixty percent. And a couple of his business partners own twenty percent each, so he can do what he wants with his money, right? And he can do what he wants with Ineos's money. And what he's starting to do is buy up um, sport in lots of different ways. So the football club he owns is OGC Nice in France, but also Lausanne Sport in Switzerland. Uh, but he's also done things like um, 
he's become the principal sponsor to the Mercedes F1 um, Formula One team. Mm. Um, he has uh, funded Iliad uh, Kipchoge's uh, uh, successful attempt to run a marathon in less than two hours. Yeah. He's funding um, the now Team Ineos uh, cycling team that was formerly Team Sky. He, he's funding Britain's attempts to win the America's Cup through Sir Ben Ainsley, the Olympic sailor. He's doing all these sorts of things. None of these entity everything he's doing here apart from maybe the football clubs can't really make money and he doesn't have any intention of making money yeah so the question is like what the hell is he doing why is he spending all this money like right, why yeah. why do it in the first place um and so there's a dark theory and a more uh, light theory i'm not quite sure that makes sense but the dark theory is that he it runs an inherently polluting company. No matter how well he, he, they try and say that they're a good environmental actor, it is a polluting company. Sure. And so activists say that this is a greenwashing exercise by planting Ineos over loads of stuff that we are uh, loving and being interested in. You, you're getting a good, um, you're getting good connotations about Ineos as a result, and you can see that that argument has played out in other kinds of sports. So um, uh, Abu Dhabi's ownership of uh, Manchester City and City Football Group, this kind of group of, of clubs around the world, the, the, I, I know because I've spoken to enough people that at least one of the motivating factors was um, to improve Abu Dhabi's image in the rest of the world by being mm. associated with sport and sports uh, washing sports washing versus yeah. green washing yeah i mean it's all washing of some sort but it's effect- <laughs> it's effectively reputation management through sport yeah, like sure. because because we sports journalists are are pretty blinkered um we will focus on all the sporting stuff and kind of ignore the bad stuff in the background mm. um that's the kind of thinking and and i know like you know city executives uh, with a link to abu dhabi they're kind of delighted by the way that abu dhabi had been seen for a long time before the whole financial fair play issue started really rearing rearing its head yeah um you know i've I've spoken to people who were who were at paris Saint-Germain at the time that the qataris took over there and they say, look, you cannot see that club as anything other than a, a political entity. You know, they yeah. make decisions for political reasons, including buying Neymar. You know, buying yeah. Neymar uh, for for 100 million euros more than anybody had ever played for a team, I was told one of the reasons for that is two weeks beforehand or shortly beforehand, other Gulf states, including Saudi Arabia and the UAE, start a economic uh, and political embargo of Qatar and one way of Qatar saying we've got a ton of liquidity and we are going to carry on business as usual is do this flashy transfer of right. of Neymar from Barcelona to PSG so given that the, so the, there is an argument that there are owners of football clubs or sporting entities out there. The, the reason they do it is not necessarily the money. It's about kind of reputation management. Mm. Now, going back to Jim Ratcliffe, 
the reason why that, that argument doesn't really isn't totally sa- satisfying and is definitely something that Ineos completely deny is that nobody had heard of Ineos really like you and I wouldn't have heard of Ineos Jim Ratcliffe no. wasn't a big household name um and uh so they, they jokingly describe it as the biggest company you've never heard of I think you yeah. right that one of their executives says that yeah and they kind of pr- they were proud of that so weirdly you've got this perverse thing happened where because he's gone and spent 400 million on these flashy sporting outfits <laughs> people are noticing him and people are starting to ask questions about his business it's kind of this kind of reverse impact and the only satisfying answer that i i could find is from jim ratcliffe's brother so jim ratcliffe wouldn't speak to me but his brother runs nice now bob ratcliffe and he's a really he's quite a compelling guy right. um, um bob and he just said uh, i i think it's not in the story but i remember it vividly i said well why is he doing this and he said well because he could you know, <laughs> he, he, he just could he's got a ton of money sure we're all gonna die why not you know why not sit in the back of a car um and watch your tour de france team go up a mountain um why not sit in a boat with ben ainsley in your america's cup boat why not try and get one of your teams into the Champions League and win it you know like that's a very compelling argument yeah you can see why somebody might want to do those things and I and I kind of came away um thinking that that's probably the main reason this is all happening right that's interesting um it reminded me when you were talking about Qatar and uh, the Saudi Arabia and UAE blockade. I think one of the funniest things about that, I don't know if you remember, was um, was uh, a, a, well, allegedly the Saudis saying that as part of the, the blockade, they were going to dig a, a hundred mile trench between the two countries and fill it with <laughs> n- nuclear waste. <laughs> Which is the thing I always remember as the, uh, as the funniest it's thing about that. It's petty stuff, right? <laughs> <laughs> And, yeah, and, really and if you really, I mean, this is completely side note. I mean, if you really get into it, there's, there's a lot of ego attached. Sure. To the, the Gulf states operate. They all, they're all kind of related to each other. They know each other, like personally, they know right. each other. Um, and, uh, and so sport had also been another way that they can have a kind of a, a proxy battle. You know, mm. My team is better than your team. Yeah. And uh, I have to say, the clubs themselves say this is a very one incredibly simplistic and two not true that they're, you know, the, they're, they're building sporting entities designed to win and uh, business groups that are diversify away from oil and gas and that sort of stuff. And that's one of the reasons. But there's certainly a political element that those clubs as, uh, as well yeah, uh, sure. it's just harder to paint on something like the Ineos project uh, it's, it, it isn't as natural to join the dots in that, uh, in, in that way which is what makes it such an, such an interesting story I think yeah I mean I, I often think that vanity is often the best way of explaining um, why owners own own sporting entities right there is money to be made at the at the top end um but they don't often make that much sense as a kind of 
an, an investment. So um, there's a professor of um, of sports management called Stefan Szymanski, hmm. who's in um, who co-wrote um, Soconomics and has been hugely influential. And and he he's pretty down on owners of sports clubs, uh, uh, football clubs and sports clubs. He, he basically says something along the lines of of this. Uh, this is his theory. So, like a lot of people who end up owning sports clubs these days they used to be the local business owner mm-hmm. and the your rise to local royalty is to own the local football club make a huge loss but be the most important person in that town right you know? yeah um and then the premier league or all these leagues went global um and now you've got these big billionaires who are coming in and they've been incredibly lucky all their lives well, um, because of all the thousands of people who didn't have that stroke of luck or insight or whatever it was that helped them allow them to build their huge business and build their wealth. Um, they've got to the top of this industry in some way, shape or form. And they think it's because they're geniuses you know we are what i'm one of the richest people on earth i'm a self-made man almost always a man like uh so obviously i'm going to be able to take over a football club which is not that much money for me and i'll i'll replicate that i'll i'll naturally become a winner and they buy a football club and then they fail miserably and the reason they fail miserably is because uh, football and sport is actually one an efficient market and two very very competitive and you can't be shielded from competition like most companies are this idea that companies are living is, in this like really competitive landscape that's nonsense like often they've found some way of shielding themselves from from competition but you can't do that in football and you can't do that in sport um and so they end up buying a <laughs> end up buying a football club and they quickly realize that they're dumb as the rest of us right, and yeah. they, they, got, they got lucky along the way they're just the man um, down the pub yeah uh, and and to bring and to bring it back to Ineos for a second I mean Ineos bought a Swiss club the first thing they did they bought a Swiss club called Lausanne Sport um, and they did it partly because they were already sponsoring the hockey club attached to Lausanne and they thought it was a natural next step and they tried to overspend on players and did all the mistakes that you normally do and they got relegated. Mm. And they they uh, and and you know Bob Radcliffe uh Jim's brother says you know we learned that just being fans isn't going to be good enough. Yeah. You need you need smart football people for want of a better term to run the club. Uh you need good advice. You need to have a different you know you, you need to do this seriously. Um, and so it took them a couple of years before they went and bought Nice and they're trying to build it up very, very slowly and steadily. And they're trying to get all these sporting entities to start talking to each other and share best practice and help each other win. Uh, and all of that is quite interesting, but it's a long-term project. And anyone who says that football isn't very, very complicated, it's a simple game, but it's very complicated to get to the top of it. Hmm. Hey, uh, off the back of that as well, uh, I think I, I read in the um, in the article that uh, Ratcliffe said that 
they will eventually evaluate bids for, for other European clubs as well, mm. a bit like the City yeah. Football Group. And it, it caused me to think about the City Football Group and, and, and the Red Bull Network as well. well uh, what is the benefit of building a, a network like that for a company? I mean, short of just a wider uh, reputational gain, why, why would a business be interested in buying multiple clubs and, and creating a, a network, for want of a better term? Yeah, right. So I can talk you through the logic of it and I can talk you through my scepticism of it as well. Yes, please. So, so okay. City Football Group um, uh, is a kind of brainchild of one particular man within the kind of uh, within that company, and that's Ferran Soriano. Mm-hmm. Um, Ferran Soriano is a chief executive of City Football Group in Manchester City. He ran Barcelona uh, for a while, and the way that Barcelona is is basically. Uh, Barcelona is a socio owned by lots of different members. Uh, they vote for somebody, a, a president, to run the club, and there's an executive team, and they're all made up of the, the Catalan business elite, basically. Right, yeah. Um, and Ferran Soriano's big insight was that Barcelona is just this one club. If we could have entities all around the world that had the Barcelona brand, you could you could make even more money. And the reason why you want to make more money is um, there's a direct correlation between how much you spend on players and winning on the pitch. You know, yeah. the idea of buying get buying matches, that's a true thing. Football's an efficient market. And Barcelona wouldn't go for it. He had a deal in place to buy a, the New York franchise of Major League Soccer. He had he he created that deal. He took that to Barcelona. They wouldn't have it, and he was very frustrated. He left. Um, Abu Dhabi buys Manchester City, and they start doing this thing where they're just pumping lots of money in, but it's, uh, but you know it's not really going anywhere. They look around. They see which models they admire. They look at Barcelona. They get. Ferran Soriano in and he pitches them this kind of wider model beyond Manchester City uh. and because they've got tons of money they can afford to go for it why not try and have a complete uh, original model to this and they're so ambitious they start buying, and they're ambitious and why not you know do, we like this idea you know mm. if, you, if you're trying to uh, spread the brand spread it around the world so they buy clubs in the US, Australia, they become the majority shareholders in Japan and they start you know, building this network. And there's lots of reasons why they think this network is going to help them long term. One is you build a scouting network which is trying to get the best players in the world to the central entity, the hub, which is yeah. Manchester City. But along the way, you're finding all these other interesting players and you've got nowhere to plant them if you find them. So you could put them in clubs around the world and all of those will help because they have a resale value at some point. Uh, those, are, those can help make you money. For example, uh, Aaron Moy was a player that was at Melbourne Mm. Um, one of their clubs and when they sold them to I think it was Huddersfield eventually it was yeah it was for about 10 million odd pounds that was the amount of money that was required to buy Melbourne City their franchise in Australia (laughs) I didn't know that right 
so like so there's you know money kind of moves around in this way in the way that football works yeah you have academies all around the world you have scouts all, all around the world and maybe a player and in an ideal world they would have a player like aaron moy bounce between clubs all around the world slight getting slightly harder 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 until they hit the first team of Manchester, uh, Manchester City, which is the central project of everything. Yeah. Um, and that only works if everybody, all of those clubs all play in a certain style. So um, the Pep Guardiola style is one that is implemented tactically across every one of these clubs because they all have to play the same way because they're all scouted the same way and they're all kind of coached the same way. Um so every club now has an Edison style goalkeeper who can play with his feet. Yeah. You know, that's kind of a, a, a central mission. It's all possession attacking base football. And the reason you do that is because how can you bounce around all these clubs if, if one club's playing long ball and another play another club is playing a completely different style. So it's a it's kind of this it's this overarching way of, of, of thinking about football, of industrialising football. Now, the bigger... I mean, that's all... There's a logic to all of that. Um, the problem is, there hasn't really been a player that's come from one of the sister clubs from around the world and broken into the Manchester City first team. It's just yeah. not happened. That has happened uh, with Red Bull, though, hasn't it? Like once or twice, a player has gone from Salzburg to to uh, Leipzig and moved on. Um, I'm struggling to think of names, but I know that that that's true, right? Yeah, that is true, and and I think it's because it's a slightly smaller network and it's all based in Europe, right? You know, Salzburg and Leipzig. They kind of there's a there's a there's a easy enough jump. You could think from Austrian to Ger- you could get a German train. Football. You could, yeah, but if you're if you're good enough, you can make that jump. It's very clear where you know which is the better league. Yeah, the, the variations aren't that big between the two. Um, uh, a, a kind of a really good example of how a network of clubs can really help you is Watford. Um, the Pozzo family who own Watford also own Udinese, and Udinese was originally the kind of the hub of the network. They used they used to own Granada in Spain. Yeah, as well. yeah. And they, you can see the lone players between these clubs uh, very, very often. You know, one club buys a uh, player and then they loan it to the other. And what? And and the reason they're trying to do that is things like they're trying to get past the the UK work permit regime. And the best way they can do that is be at an Italian club for a certain amount of time. That allows them to move to Watford. Sure. Um, at some point in the future, you know, there, those smaller networks seem to have worked. The all-encompassing global one doesn't seem naturally like like the variations of ability that you need to play in Uruguayan football because uh, they own Atletico Torque in, mm. in Uruguay. Um, to the Major League Soccer in the US, to the A-League in Australia, to the Premier League. It's just so vast. It's just, it's unimaginable. Yeah. Um, and it's unclear that that is going to work. Now, it's very interesting that they, they're now they're, they're, they're talking to a, a French club at the moment, Nancy, in the French second division. Um, they have this link into um, Spanish football 
you know, you can see that they're they're starting to focus in on Europe a lot. Uh, a, a bit more now. Well, they need to bridge that gap, right? If if it is yeah. a, if it is the situation of there being the jump in quality being too high, then presumably the answer to that is to buy a European club. Yeah, um, mm. but the the problem with that is that the rules say that UEFA and, um, and FIFA rules say that you can't own clubs um, that are going to be in the same competition as each other. So Red Bull get around this by not being. I can't remember if it's Leipzig or. Um, or or Salzburg, which is they kind of the heavily influenced running of a club, but they're not quite owners, so they can right. get away with it. Oh, I see. Um, I see. But you wouldn't be able to do that in Europe. You so you wouldn't be able to buy um, uh, like a, a a top team in in France or Spain because there's an obvious sense that if you own two clubs that are going to set, play each other in the Champions League. The, you know, how do they how do they have a fair match against each other? Could you buy a, um, a French second division team then? Yeah, I think yeah. the idea is you buy you buy teams that won't have that problem, right? Um, and um, and at least won't that problem won't be tested anytime soon. Yeah, it's a kind of it's a kind of thinking. Um, and in the case of Ineos, so. Um, Ineos buy OGC Nice one of the reasons they buy Nice is because they have a tour of the training ground of Chelsea um, and Chelsea's for sale um, for sure and they're kind of they're quoted somewhere between two and four billion pounds and they <laughs> okay. think mm, no we're not going to spend <laughs> that kind of money and they you know they get they get um uh, a, a chance to look at Newcastle United. Newcastle United are currently asking price for that is three hundred and fifty million pounds. Mm. And in, the Ineos guys say, "Well, what's the best we can do?" I mean, Bob Radcliffe again. This is stuff he said and didn't use in the piece. He said, well, "Best you can do is the Everton Cup." You know, we're not really in it for that. You know, seventh place uh, isn't what we're what we're aiming for here. Yeah, and the big six clubs all have multi-billion pound for sale signs on them. And he says they're all for sale. That That's him wow. and me. Um, and that's all great. The owners have done brilliantly to build up these clubs, but no one's actually paid that price before. That hasn't right. been tested. You can have the theoretical value of billions, but no one's actually paid that. And they're never going to be dumb money. So they looked outside and they looked at France and they thought they could get better value. And they think over time they can build it into a Champions League club. And if they do look for other clubs, it would be lower down the leagues across Europe as a yeah. way, as a kind of a feeder system. Um, so I think they definitely see, they admire the Red Bull model and they look at that as a more sensible model for all their sporting entities mm. more than a City Football Group, which has got much broader and bigger global ambitions that haven't really been proven quite yet. I wonder, um, I, d I don't know if these are just rumours, I'm not in the position that you are where I speak to club executives and stuff, so this is this is, this is is stuff I read on, on the rumour pages of the internet. <laughs> uh, but uh, I did I did read that um, 
the Glazers were allegedly going to to visit the uh, I can't remember what the actual conference was called, but they were calling it the Davos in the desert in Saudi Arabia yeah. the, uh, to talk to talk to the Saudis um, or Mohammed bin Salman about about uh, buying buying the club, and then the Jamal Khashoggi uh, assassination occurred in, in Turkey, and it scared everyone, and no one went to the conference and. Then there was a discussion that they were going to meet again. I wonder if maybe coronavirus, pr- presumably, has put a, put a halt on that again. It's going to happen at some point, right? I mean, someone's going to spend a lot of money on a football club, uh, and they'll go, well, they're going to trigger one of those for sale signs you're talking about. And um, is, is, presumably, it's going to be um, uh, Saudi Arabia. Mm, I don't know. I like this is something I've been trying to get inside. For right. a very, very long time. Say no so more. Your course, so your course of events sounds, uh, from what I've been told, is all correct, apart from the the, the following year uh, after the Khashoggi murder and everything in the business world had calmed down somewhat, um, that Manchester United executives were at the... Uh, future investment forum they call it and you know they were giving presentations there Mm. Um, uh, and the the closest we heard to anything really happening was that the Saudis the Saudi um, sovereign wealth fund called the public investment fund the PIF as it's known um, were looking for a minority investment in Manchester United that's that. That's as close as we've got to it. We never, I, I've haven't seen anything properly legit that tells me that there was a bid on the table no, for fair Manchester enough. United. But Newcastle is is those talks are happening. We know that they're happening, and it's a completely weird situation. Um, you know, eighty percent of this three hundred and fifty million pound bid. For Mike Ashley's Newcastle United, um, I'm sure a lot of the fans will love it that I called it Mike Ashley's, but he owns <laughs> club. Uh, is is coming from Saudi Investment Fund? Mm. Then most of the rest of it comes from Amanda Staveley, uh, who was uh, who owns a private equity firm, but also was the original broker yeah. to the Man City deal uh, way back when it's not entirely clear to me why Amanda Stavely's in this deal at all. There's this kind of, there's this weird story that was in the Wall Street Journal that she's connected to an influencer who used to be friends with Kim Kardashian, who is close to the head of uh, the Public Investment Forum. And they're all kind of connected (laughs) to each other and they're sitting on the same boat (laughs) making these deals. I mean, it's mad that things like the world operates in this way but yeah. it does seem to operate in this way it really does um, huh? and so it, it it isn't clear to us why the saudis are operating in this way through amanda Staley for this deal they don't need to but they seem to be doing so uh you know i i get very angry newcastle fans on my feed because i write a story saying that you know they're in talks and they're relatively close to a deal but uh and no deal has taken place so you know that naturally means all my reporting was incorrect but from from what i'm told these talk these talks are live and they're still ongoing and it and the saudis are pumping a lot of money into sport and it does seem natural that they would buy a premier league team at some point 
Right. Like, it'd be quite a flashy move to go for Manchester United. Mm. Like, yeah, it would the, be, huh? Well, just imagine the British media. Um, <laughs> with, of which you are with, a part. Of Mark. which I am kind <laughs> of a part. The Financial Times is a weird place. We kind of, everybody <laughs> talk. It's like we don't really count ourselves as part of the British media. <laughs> we, I feel like that's what everyone the, does. We're the global media. Yeah, you know? right. Okay. Yeah, we yeah. just have a, an office in London. Uh, <laughs> uh, that you don't use anymore. Mm. Yeah, currently, you know. Are you okay for another now. another couple of minutes? Yeah, sure. I just wanted to ask you uh, questions about you, if that's okay. Sure. Um, you have an un- unusual role in that you are, I mean, I guess, I guess, a football journalist, but not in the in the mould that um, the other football journalists are. How did you end <laughs> up in in your in your role? How did you get to? Did you study like business and finance, or did you did you know? Did you want to be a journalist or a football journalist? I guess is the yeah, question I'm asking. I, I feel like I'm a really odd fish in this uh, uh, in this particular world. Best and, kind of fish, Murad. Yeah, I'm I'm treated oddly as well. I, I find, but in in mm. ways that are gen, generally beneficial. So I um, I started my I, I started as a trainee reporter at the Times newspaper. Um, fell into a job covering technology when my very graying editors thought it was the internet was a bit of a fad and you right. should get the young guy to do that young guy kind of things like yeah you know the asian guy you know makes sense he would do it you, know, sure, that sort of right. thing. you understand uh, computers yeah yeah give, give it to him uh, and and you know then the iphone the ipad twitter facebook happens and mm. it becomes one of the biggest story in the world stories in the world they covered silicon valley and so on um, and uh, I moved to the FT to cover technology, um, partly because the FT's pitch to me was that technology is a front page story for us, and it's right. never going to be at the Times, and that is absolutely true. Um, so what the hell happened? And then what? So the FT has a weird relationship with sport, in that my first tangle with it was um, there's a job that came up. Uh, a couple of months before the Olymp- uh, the Olympic Games, uh, which is called the Leisure Correspondent, and the Leisure Correspondent <laughs> covers hotels, gambling, restaurants, wow. uh, the cruise industry, like really all the best things, all the stuff, yeah, and also sport. Uh, and whoever had done the Leisure Correspondent's job for the last ten years uh, also went to the Olympic Games. As, as the sports <laughs> correspondent, and I knew this, and I right. immediately applied and got the job. You're um, sounding a little bit like Jim Ratcliffe right now. Yeah, I mean, because I knew, I, I thought, why not? I'd, I'd done technology for a long time, um, and whoever had done the sport, uh, the leisure correspondent's job, uh, had always done, you know, more than half their time was covering sport and sporting stories, just because. Money-wise, it's not as big as the hotel industry. Mm. Genuinely, isn't. But the impact-wise and the amount that people want to read um, is kind of endless. And this kind of, uh, I ended up falling into it, and I, I've ended up doing two basically ways of kind of defining myself against everyone else. Uh, one is that I do it heavily as a corporate story. I actually do it as a business story. And all, all my news is really about the money in sport. Yeah. Um, 
so that's why Ineos and City Football Group and uh, Qatar and PSG are all super interesting because they their politics and their their business uh, stories as much as their sports stories. And then the other thing is like I I, I really like writing long thorough pieces so i do i go away and spend two weeks doing the most in-depth story you can possibly do about about some uh, uh, about something in sport and that can be really geeky uh, yeah. sports stories like I, I did a the first magazine sport story on sport i did was um how to how to save a penalty kick like right, but yeah. by talking to scientists and game theories and Valencia's Diego Alves, or he used to be at Valencia, who had a ridiculously high save rate, and, you know, and uh, spoke to goalkeepers around the world, and we did 4,000 words on that, uh, and it took two months to report. Uh, there aren't that many people doing <laughs> doing sport to that level of seriousness yeah, right? in that way. Um, so those are my... They're, they're the two things that I add. It means that the rest of the industry either doesn't know or care about me and that's fine or <laughs> treats me in a really weird way like the way that the football journalists all interact with each other i still find very strange you know sure they, they're called the pack yeah and i'm very much not of the pack no me neither um yeah <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of fine with that that's, that works <laughs> for me what's that groucho marx quote huh yeah Exactly. We um, and we wouldn't ever repeat the quote because no. we know it intimately. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Hey man, well listen, thanks so much for for coming. I really appreciate it. I've I found it very interesting to talk to you as you have described your role as as oddly unique. That's what's uh, that's what interests me so much about it. So um thank you for your time and extensive knowledge. Well, uh, not at all, and um, hopefully I'll actually get to meet you physically at some point in the future. I know, wouldn't, wouldn't that be cool That'd if be we're nice. allowed outside of our houses? Let's do it, man. Yeah, you have a studio, that would be great. I know, yeah, I'm, and, and I, I've just I've brought all my stuff home right now, and uh, tell you what, I couldn't be happier because I'm surrounded by dark wood and books, and I never thought this, is, this was who I am. <laughs> But it is. I've been so happy. The I'm last not going to lie. Days. I'm in my bed with the duvet <laughs> over me. Uh, that's and that's how I. That's You've why I've been so relaxed. Under there for an hour. Okay, it's time to get out now. Uh, yeah, Murad, absolutely. thanks. Thanks so much, man. And uh, hopefully, we'll speak to you again soon. At American University, we don't just hope for change, we create it. We don't just dream of a better world, we make it a reality. With a graduate degree from AU, you'll access expert faculty and connections throughout D.C. to develop skills and experience to turn your passion into purpose. And that purpose can make all the difference in your career. Discover the difference a degree makes at American.edu gradschool.